Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. To what's going on in Solomon's life when this whole episode unfolds. And as you can see from the picture, the idea is that Solomon is entering a point in his life where he's got some very big shoes to fill. And I don't know if you've ever seen a little kid try to walk around in his daddy's shoes. It's cute until he starts scuffing up the floor and falling and bashing his head because it's hard for you to walk in shoes that are much bigger than your own. Now what's going on in Solomon's life at this time is that he's at a major turning point. He has just become king of his entire nation that he's grown up in all his life. He's seen the legacy of his father David, who was perhaps the greatest king that Israel had ever seen, and now he's ready to take his place His father had done amazing things, and all eyes were on him, and he was only in his 20s. Add to that the additional pressure that the way he rose to the throne was a lot of drama. You see, before he he even came on the scene, his oldest brother Absalom had gone through this huge drama where he tried to take the throne from his father David and was unsuccessful and ended up really losing his life over it. And then his other brother, Adonijah, Seeing that his father David was on his deathbed, sick and dying, thought he found his chance to take the throne. And so he, he gathered some key supporters from, from his father David's administration, and he garnered a lot of public support. And it says in the text, very interesting, you can read the whole story in 1 Kings chapter 1-2, to 2, you read that Adonijah was really good-looking. I don't know how good-looking you got to be for that description of you to find its way into the Bible, but man, this guy must have been good-looking. I mean, fine, right? And the thing is, when you walk in the room, that's the first thing you notice about this guy. And have you noticed that that gets you places in life? We all kind of regret that that's true because most of us ain't that good-looking. But the way it works is, if you're good-looking, You get a lot of stuff done. People open doors for you, pick up tabs for you if you're good looking. And so he had no problem standing on a podium saying to people, hey, do I look like the guy who could be your next king? And everyone said, yeah, you do. We like looking at you. And so they all rallied around him and Adonijah, his brother, basically threw a little, I'm going to be the new king party all by himself without his father's permission and thought that if he just gets the party done, then who could reverse that decision? Well, through a very intricate political maneuver, Solomon takes the throne away from his brother Adonijah, and through a series of circumstances, his brother is put to death because he would not drop the issue and continue vying for the throne. So here he is, risen to the throne with the blood of his own brother on his hands, only in his 20s, and guess what? On top of all that, guess who Solomon's mommy was? It was that woman Bathsheba that Benson preached about last week, and there's a lot of drama and controversy surrounding that guy, that lady too, right? So already, here's Solomon starting out his new career as king, and the chips are stacked against him. It's a great nation, risen to great prosperity, and frankly, he felt like it was too big a task for him, and he didn't know what to do next. I've got a question for you. Where do you turn to when you're feeling like that? Unless you've had your head buried in the sand and attempted nothing all your life, you have probably faced a moment like that where you got into a situation where someone was inviting you to do something, but you felt nervous because it seemed like too big a task. Maybe someone invited you to try something new, take a leadership position, take a risk, a new experience, or maybe you just got a new job. 
Isn't it interesting how you're trying to apply to all these colleges or all these jobs or you're trying to propose marriage to some girl or, or all these big things that you think once you get over that hump, you're going to be fine. But then once you get there, you realize the challenge has really begun. Solomon discovered that becoming king, as filled with drama as it was, was the easy part. Actually doing the work was the really hard part. You know, Jason Pankow told me that, that for one summer he trained. You know Jason who's uh, leading our Omega course. He's preached here before. He's a good friend. And he told me that for one season, one summer, he trained with the Indianapolis Colts, uh, trying to get into the NFL. And he said, you know, when he got that invitation to train, it was like he'd won the lottery, right? He was so excited for the opportunity until the training started. And that's the way it is with so much in life. Getting in the door is the easy part. Staying in is the hard part. And Solomon knew that he had entered into something bigger than him. Now, I don't know where you go, but a lot of us go to Starbucks when we're feeling out of sorts, a, a little intimidated. We go to a coffee shop or we go to the, the, the street where our friends hang out or, or we go to somebody's backyard and sit on their, their, their porch and we talk with other people because we're feeling nervous and tense and we need someone to tell us it's going to be okay. But you and I both know that after all those hours spent chatting with our friends, you walk away going, well, I feel a little better, a little better, but I don't feel like my friend is able to help me rise to the challenge that's in front of me. If it's too much for me, then really how much help can my friend give me? Well, where did Solomon turn? It says that he went to the place of worship. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. And listen to what it says here. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. The temple had not been built yet because Solomon would do that as one of the crowning achievements of his, of his reign as king, is he would build a massive temple for the Lord. But until that place had been built, the main places of worship were unofficial, unsanctioned altars scattered all throughout the land, and the most important one was at Gibeon, and, and he went there because that was the last resting place of the Ark of the Covenant, which many of us know from Indiana Jones fame, right? <laughs> or if you read the Old Testament, it's in there too. You know, the Ark of the Covenant used to rest there, and that was the last earthly resting place for it before it was moved. And, and so he went there to worship, and it says this was not a new thing for him, but that literally he had made a thousand offerings there before. In other words, what we're learning is that Solomon was a guy who, when he was feeling a need for guidance or help or support, would instinctively turn to God in an act of worship to try to make a connection with him. And so it was nothing new. It was a pattern in his life that he sought the Lord when he felt overwhelmed by the challenges of life. In fact, it says that he was so bent on getting some kind of a word from God that he would not leave until he got it. Now, I don't know if you've ever prayed that intensely for anything before. You know, I'm not really a prayer warrior, but there have been a few times in my life where I have prayed as if everything rested on it. I remember when I was in my genetics program thinking about entering a full-time call to ministry, and I was going to throw away everything. You have no idea how hard I worked to get where I was, and I was about to just flush it down the toilet for a life in ministry. And you better believe I prayed and dotted my I's and crossed my T's to make absolutely sure that I wasn't making the biggest mistake of my life. Now, I courted Jeannie for five and a half years, but I prayed like crazy that last month before I proposed to her. Because I wasn't asking her, Jeannie, would you be my first wife? You know, like, I want her to be my only wife. 
that'll catch up to you in about five minutes. Okay? I'm asking her to be my only wife. I get to make that decision once in my earthly life. And you better believe that even after five and a half years of long courtship, my heart shook at the prospect of making that final decision. And when the Lord gave me peace about it, I was able to get on a plane and fly to Chicago and propose. There are times in our lives where the challenges and the unknowability of the future are so overwhelming that if you don't get an answer from God, that it's okay to proceed, that He's got your back, you are paralyzed and you cannot move. And at those times, where will you turn? Solomon sets the example for us in that he turns to God. He instinctively turns to worship. And in fact, he spent the night there until he got the answer. That kind of tenacity is what we need to learn when we're feeling overwhelmed by what life's throwing at us. It was in, in his sleep at the house of worship. He fell asleep there. I, a lot of you know what that feels like to fall asleep at church, right? Wake up if you're doing it right now. But you know what it feels like to fall asleep at church. Solomon had prayed. He fell asleep at church. And in that night of fitful sleep, he had a dream. And in that dream, he was invited to make a wish. That's the best picture I could find of one of those fountains with uh, coins. You see all those coins. Some of you even dip in and pick some up and get your kid a gumball. He was invited to make a wish. Here's what he heard in his dream. That night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream and God said, What do you want? Ask and I will give it to you. Other translations really carry the force of that. It wasn't just ask, it was ask anything. God is giving a human being a blank check. And what, what he says in response has become one of the most famous responses to God ever recorded in the Bible. It's an amazing thing to be asked, what do you want, anything, and you get a chance to say one thing that represents the deepest longing of your heart. You know, God saw Solomon's deep desire to make a difference in the world, to do something great with his life, and I think he loved that, and that's why he made this invitation. And some of you guys are in your 20s or even early 30s, and you still have that beautiful idealism that comes with you. You know what I'm talking about? Where you actually think that you're going to change the world someday. That everything is possible. That we can overthrow administrations, overthrow communist reigns. and things. You actually believe that's doable. All these great movements in history were fueled largely by the idealism of the young. If you have that, do not ever let some crusty old 40-year-old person like me tell you, oh, that's not realistic. Dream a new dream. You're being, you're being ridiculous. If you have that idealism of youth, if somehow God laid it on your heart that you could be in the NFL or that you could be the next president of the United States or you could be the evangelist who leads millions to the Lord and someone says to you, don't bother, tell them to be quiet and get in the back seat. The idealism of youth is something that draws the heart of God out and he makes this invitation to this young man and I wonder if I could ask you a question. If God asked you to wish for anything in the world, Right now, what would you ask for? And I'm going to let that marinate for a while because the truth is your own life has already signaled to the world what the answer to that question is. Every one of your friends and family who really know you could fill in the blank right now for you. They could tell you what you'd wish for because it's what you've already sacrificed everything to get. It's what you are bent on chasing after right now in your life. 
if you could ask God for anything in the world, what would it be? What an amazing invitation to be given. And what's interesting is that about a thousand years after Solomon, another human being with a very similar name, a young girl named Salome, would hear very similar words. Now, Salome was a young girl whose mother was Herodias, and she had divorced her former husband to marry King Herod around the time of Jesus. And Salome was kind of like the female version of Adonijah. She was hot. And when Salome danced, everyone stopped eating and watched her dance. And I imagine that her dancing was not some kind of, you know, you know like this kind of ballroom. I think it was a little more, I can't do it for you because it will stumble you because it would be too good. But I think it's the kind of dancing that women wouldn't want to watch, if you get my drift. Okay? And Salome danced at a party in the royal court in front of Herod. And though it was his stepdaughter, he watched Salome dance, and he was moved. In fact, he was so moved, it says, and when the daughter of Herodias came in to dance, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. No kidding. Then the king said to the girl, Ask me for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. Now, much better invitation if it comes from God, but if it comes from the king, it's a pretty good second place choice. So here's another opportunity for us to see what a person would wish for if they could be granted anything. And here's what we learn, that a wish is a window into your soul. That what you wish for is what you most long for, and that's like giving the whole world a peek into what your soul contains. This young girl is like, what do I do? The king just offered me anything, even up to half his kingdom. So what does she do? She runs to her mom and says, Ma, your husband just offered me anything, even half the kingdom. What should I ask for? And listen to what spews out of Herodias' mouth. She says, you know what you ask for? Go back and say, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Now when you're offered a chance to get anything in the world, why would you ask for somebody to be put to death? Because John the Baptist, when this woman, in her ambition, had divorced her other husband and married up to be the king's wife, John the Baptist, among all the religious leaders, had the guts to stand up and say, that is wrong, and he criticized them publicly, and she hated it because he made her feel guilty and shabby for doing it. And so all these years, she's harboring a grudge, and that's what is defining her soul. Some of you know what I'm talking about. You have had this long-standing, unfinished business in your life, a grudge or a bitterness that you can't seem to let go of, and it is encroaching on you and choking the life out of you. In fact, everyone around you will testify, it has owned you, and it has defined who you are. You are nothing more than that deep, bitter place that you have created a reservoir for. That's all that you are. So that when someone gives you an opportunity to get anything in the world, the one thing you will squander that wish on is revenge. What a waste. What a waste of an amazing once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. But that's the point of a wish, is that when you prod someone with a wish, what comes out is what's filling their soul. There is no hiding it. There is no faking it. What comes out is what's really there. And you know it. I mean, if we said, what's your one wish, and we made you come in front of the church and say it on the mic, you'd all be like, world peace and the salvation of all mankind. Thank you very much. That's if you had to say it in church. 
But if you could answer that question privately, oh, give me a break. Uh, I would like to be the finest woman in all the earth. Um, I would want men to literally drop dead when I walk in the room. Too much beauty. I just, die. I want to have a hundred quadrillion, gugillion bucks. I want to own the earth. I want to dunk a basket. I don't know what you'd ask for. You'd ask for something, right? If you could answer privately, I bet you would have a very different answer, and it would show us what has filled the reservoir of your soul. Listen to what Solomon, when he's asked the same question, answers to God. O Lord my God, now you have made me king instead of my father David, but I am like a little child who doesn't know his way around. And here I am among your own chosen people, a nation so great, they are too numerous to count. Give me an understanding mind so that I can govern your people well and know the difference between right and wrong. For who by himself is able to govern this great nation of yours? I wish I could give a whole separate sermon on just the qualities I love about that answer, but let me point out a few things quickly to you. And the first is that he says, I'm like a little child. I'm like a little child. Did you catch that? And a lot of people think that means um, that Solomon was one of these boys who would become king. He was, he was brought to the throne at the age of 14 or something. That's not the case. He was clearly in his mid-20s or so. And so he's not literally a child, but that's what this challenge makes him feel like. Maybe you could relate when you've been in front of a challenge so great, you just wanted to say, Mommy, Mommy. I mean, it's weird. I, I find myself wanting my mom even at this age. Is that sad or what? When I've got too big a challenge, who do you think I turn to and just, what do you think I should do? I still ask my mother and my father. He admitted his need. He said, this is a, a people that are just too great to be governed by myself. That word great in the Hebrew is literally heavy. He wasn't saying that they're an awesome people. He was saying that it's too much to govern these people. They complain a lot. They come up with every little issue. They love arguing. These are not an easy people to govern. I can't handle that kind of responsibility. Now, do you know what's so important about those two elements? That Solomon is real about his need. And there's just something about real need, honestly expressed, that opens up the hearts of people. I mean, I was walking out the other day out of a grocery store, and I saw these girls who had this big poster board that says, I'm going to nationals for softball. Please help me get there. And, and just seeing her eyes, she was like, I want to play so badly, but we're broke. I need some money to get to this game. And I gave. Why do you think I did? Because I could see a genuine sense of need, and she was honestly expressing it. Now, if I walked out of that jewel, and what I saw instead was a bunch of very wealthy people in Armani suits saying, please, would you help us? We need to save our mansion. You know, the sprinkler system is broken, and I really can't handle the lawn is turning yellow. And how many of you would be like, oh, I'm so moved to compassion. I was going to feed my kids dinner, but listen, you need it more than I do. Please go save your golf course, your country club. Please save your Learjet. You know, when you see real need honestly expressed it promotes generosity in everyone. It, it touches the best and noblest parts of ourselves and especially of God. 
Repeatedly in the Bible, God says he really doesn't like to see proud people, but when he sees the humble and broken in heart, his heart surges forward to them instinctively. He wants to help. And we all know what that's like because we have that in us too. We love to meet real needs. The reason some of us don't get our prayers answered is we're too proud to just admit that I don't have enough to handle this burden. We trust in our bank accounts, in our education, in our strong marriages to have our backs. We think we can handle everything when the honest truth is we can't. And until you get to a place where you can admit your real need, God cannot answer half of our prayers. And then what's amazing is that Solomon goes on to say, I don't want smart, I want an understanding mind. You know, if you could read that in the Hebrew, it would really be more accurately translated, I want a hearing or listening mind. What that means is I want it to be discerning. Here's the important thing about that. It's a nuance, but you've got to catch it. An, a hearing mind means that it requires someone else to speak. That it's not self-generated wisdom, but it's wisdom that comes from hearing somebody smarter talk to you. You know, I, I love how a lot of my friends, when we were in college, we used to do a little dabbling in, in stock investments. And some of these guys try to act like they're big players, big ballers, like, oh, yeah, I, I invest in stock all the time. They're investing in a few hundred dollars worth of shares and this or that. But I would ask them, how do you know what to do? And they're like, I just got it like that up here, man. I, I'm a financial wizard. Here's what I found that they were really doing. They would just watch Financial News Network, and whenever some guy got all apoplectic about this new stock, they would buy a share, and if it hit, they would brag about it to everyone. If it sank, they would just keep their mouths shut. They were creating the false illusion of genius by just listening to others who were smarter than them. And that's really what biblical wisdom is about. None of us are that smart that in and out of ourselves, we'll have the answers for all of life's challenges. But God is smarter than every one of us. And when you ask not for intelligence, but for a connection to God, it's like in the the, the millionaire game, when you have a lifeline, I want to call a friend, that's a valuable lifeline. Because that's the one thing that connects you to wisdom outside of yourself. That trust the audience, whatever, right? But a real friend, an expert, that's something good to have in your pocket. And that's what Solomon asked for. He asked in a prayer for something that would presume that God stays in the picture. I need you to stay here. I want you to keep talking to me so that I don't have to get rid of you. Now contrast that to some of our prayers and our wishes. We would wish for wealth. Why? Because then I'd be bulletproof. I wouldn't need anybody. I'd never have to tuck my tail between my legs and go begging for scraps to people. I'd be the baller. I'd be the one walking in the room and everyone's asking me for favors. Everyone's trying to be nice to me. I could buy my way out of every problem. And do you see the net effect of that? Is that we ask for things that would buffer us from needing God. That would eventually work God right out of the picture. Make me so beautiful that everyone wants to be my friend that I won't ever have to need you, God. Because who could be lonely when the whole world wants to be by your side? Are you getting the picture? So many of the things we ask for would push God right out of the picture. We say things like, I want to be smart so I don't need to keep asking you every time I have a question. What's so bad about asking God every time something comes up? It's a better picture to have God in the room all the time. And so here's the answer that he gets from God. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. It pleased the Lord. And that's important It matters when you're asking someone for something 
that they like what they're hearing from you. How many kids could get their way if they said, Ma, listen, I want a BB gun for Christmas so I could shoot my little sister. I've just been really wanting that. Can I? What if I said, honey, I like money to buy a motorcycle because the ladies love it when a guy is on a... How, how far am I going to get with a request like that that is just putrid in the ears of the person you're asking? If you have any brains at all, you know it's important that when you're asking someone for something, they've got to like what you're asking for. It matters. God was pleased with what he heard coming out of Solomon. And here's the thing. This is the heart of every parent, is that you could manage behavior and you could spank your kids and all that, but what really delights your heart is not when they act well for a reward, but when you're watching them all by themselves, like like a Discovery Channel documentary, in nature's wild, and there they are, unobserved, and they do the right thing. When you just happen to walk around the corner and see one child saying to the other, it's okay, it was an accident, I forgive you, and your two children hug each other, and you just want to faint with pride and gratification because your children have got it. They've inherited from you the very best that you could give them in terms of character and upbringing. And so all by themselves, they are expressing something which you could not possibly force into them. That's a wonderful moment for a father. And, and God, as Solomon's heavenly father, delighted When he asked this young man, what do you want? And the answer that came out of Solomon's mouth so lined up closely with the heart of God. And he could not wait to answer that promise, that that request. Do you see how it works? When our hearts please our heavenly fathers, we can ask bold things and God delights to answer those prayers. I wonder how many of our prayers go unanswered because the way we ask for things shows that the only person we really care about is ourselves. I know that's something you're supposed to hear in church, but let me just take a moment to have you reflect because nobody likes self-centeredness. We all universally agree it's ugly. It's just that we don't see how self-centered we are. How the whole world has to think like me or you're all just stupid. If you don't think like me, you're an idiot. Have you ever felt that way? How self-centered we are. The things we want are all about, how does it make me feel, right? Uh, You know, when you're in a conversation, you say, that's enough about me. Let's talk about how you feel about me. That kind of heart is in all of us. And so we're always asking for things that lift us up high above the shoulders of everyone else around us. Solomon asked for something that kept him connected to God and remained lower than God because God's plan for his life was far greater than Solomon's own plan for his life. Now that's what happens. And so he gets the wisdom that he asked for. But you know those TV infomercials that go, but wait, there's more. right? Solomon has a moment like that because God goes, but wait, there's more. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for, and right here he names the top three wishes that are likely to come out of someone's mouth. You haven't asked for long life or riches or for the lives or really the deaths of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Because you've given the right answer, the answer that my heart delights in, behold, I now do according to your word, behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall rise after you, and I will also give you what you did not ask for, riches and honor. No other king in all the world will be compared to you for the rest of your life. 
What a great deal, right? Now, some of us have learned the wrong lesson from that. Always ask for the humble thing first because you'll probably get everything else. But that's not the point. Solomon asked for the most important thing. So many of us want a sudden windfall of blessing to drop in our lap without realizing it would probably end up being a bigger curse than a blessing. You know, I did a little research into the topic, and I traced out what happens to lottery winners after they hit the multi-million dollar jackpot. And do you realize that a third of all multi-million dollar lottery winners are broke again within a couple years? And what that tells me is that if you give a large blessing to someone who lacks wisdom, then that's a blessing that will guaranteed be here today and gone tomorrow. But if you have wisdom, it helps you to actually generate and protect the blessings in the world around us. You have wisdom, you can generate wealth, you can keep wealth, and you know what to do with wealth so that it stays a blessing. But if you don't have, bless, if you don't have the, the blessing of wisdom, then all the money in the world will rot your heart and will leave your hands quickly. Isn't it said truly that a fool and his money are easily parted? And I've seen that happen in the lives of even my own friends. If you could ask for something, ask for the thing that forms the foundation, not for the thing that just gets poured into the sack. Ask for wisdom, not just for wealth or beauty or all the other things we've seen tear people's hearts apart. He also promises to Solomon that if he would honor God all the days of his life, he would also give him a long life. Now that's one of the things that ultimately did not come to pass for Solomon, but I'll give you more on that in a second. Now so here we are, and I'm wrapping this up in a second here. God gives Solomon the wisdom he asked for because what Solomon wants is to do the very thing which God called him to do. Something amazing happens when you know what God wants from you and you ask boldly for the things that help you get there. But there's got to be a test. You know, did you ever see the movie Year One? There's a lot of very unredeeming elements in that movie, but there's a really funny scene where Jack Black eats that tree from the forbidden tree of knowledge of good and evil, and he says, oh, it's got a really knowledgey taste, right? And afterwards, he's wondering, did anything happen? So he, goes, he says to the other guy, Michael Sarah, ask me a question, ask me anything. And clearly nothing's happened because every question the guy asks him, he doesn't have the answer for. But when you feel like something happened, you, you need to put it to the test. If I said to you, boom, I just conferred upon you incredible business knowledge, wouldn't you need to go out there and find out if it actually happened? And so here, right away, there comes a test. Now two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Let's pause right there. Because already I'm seeing evidence that wisdom has come. How is it that two prostitutes, okay, Two pro- you guys know what a prostitute is, right? They're not usually people who make their way into the royal courts, at least in the daytime. Okay? <laughs> you know what I'm saying. So two prostitutes come into the royal court, and they're having an argument, and the amazing thing is in those days, the king's court was the supreme court. And here's two, basically, prostitutes arguing about something that happened in their little house, and it makes its way to the king, which tells me that when you get godly wisdom... It revolutionizes the way you think about justice and equality. It changes the way you think about human beings. You don't see people according to their labels. Oh, there's just a whore, a hooker. That's all she is. She's just some dirty woman who makes money having sex with strangers. She's not worth the king's time. That is not the way Solomon saw them. He saw two women, one of whom was brokenhearted and the other was in terror. 
And these women needed a wise ruling or they would go on to do something very regrettable with their own lives. And so he let them speak and that is the first sign that wisdom has found its way into Solomon's heart is that it's changed the way he thinks about people and about life. And I want to challenge you on that. How do you look at people? Do you see everybody in terms of categories? There's a homeless guy. There's a gangbanger. There's a Wall Street CEO. I already got them figured out. I know what they're all about. I know their type, their kind. If you think that way, then you probably don't make any eye contact with the cashier at Walmart. She's just a living robot. How much? $12.95. Thank you. Have a nice day. And she's treating you like a robot. When they say, have a nice day, they're not even looking at you. They're snapping their gum, wishing they were off duty. When you get godly wisdom, you see people very differently. And for some of us, that's really what we need to have more of in the jobs that God's called us to do. They tell him a tragic story that these two prostitutes each had an illegitimate son. And in the middle of the night, one of them, they both kept their sons close to them when they slept. They didn't have cribs and bassinets. They were poor prostitutes, so they just slept on the floor with their kids. And one of them rolled over in the middle of the night and squashed her baby to death. And she woke up in the morning, there was her baby smothered to death by her own weight. What do you do with a tragedy like that? She was so brokenhearted that she, in the middle of the night, snuck out and switched the baby with her roommates. And then her roommate awoke and said, oh no, my baby's dead. And then she looked closer, and every mother knows her own child. She said, that's not my baby. And so she decided to, to challenge her roommate, and she denied it. She said, no, your baby's dead, mine's alive, and, and it's just my word against yours now. Who's going to believe two prostitutes? So she said, I think Solomon will. And she brought it to the king's court and brought this tragic story before them. And what do you do with that? What would you have done? In our day, we would have probably done all kinds of DNA testing and interviewing of suspects and witnesses. But Solomon had a different kind of wisdom. It wasn't the mechanical wisdom of analyzing data. It was the piercing wisdom of knowing the truth of people's hearts and of a situation. It was the kind of wisdom that has that magical quality where you just go, how did you do that? How did you know that? And Solomon's answer is, I don't know, but somehow after the Lord blessed me, I know people. I understand how to draw the truth out of a situation. He didn't give a ruling. He let the women work out the case themselves. And you know the, the now famous story. Solomon said, bring a dude in has a sword. That's his wonderful drawing, very dark picture of a man about to slice a baby in half. He says, let's do this, ladies. How about if we cut the living baby in half, each of you take half? Now, you know how absurd that is, right? Someone probably is like, uh, king, you know the baby will die if you do that. I don't know how wise you are, but that's just basic medicine 101. The king's like, shut up, I know, just watch. And what happens? The, the, the one who is lying, she says, hey, go ahead and do it. That's fine with me. But the real mother says, no, let her have the baby as long as the baby lives. And thereby Solomon knew who was the true mother. That's a famous story, a beautiful example of the kind of genius wisdom that only comes from God. When someone has wisdom like that and they're given positions of great influence, everyone around them feels better about life. It casts a certain kind of peace among a group of people when the leaders in charge are good people who have the righteousness and wisdom of God flowing through their hearts. And when you suspect that that's not the case, it makes you nervous all the time. Like, what's up their sleeve? What are they up to? Can I trust them? 
And look what it says the testimony is. That all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. Do you see the peace that settles on the land when a real king with real wisdom has all the power? Much better than the good-looking dude who would bend the rules to get his climb to power. Better Solomon than Adonijah. And I tell you that our world needs more people like Solomon today. And you know that. In our schools, in our governments, in our businesses, in our families, we need you to be more like Solomon. I'm going around the final corner here. I'll just say this. I wish I could say that Solomon's story had a happy ending. I wish I could tell you he lived to the ripe old age of like 820, but he didn't. He was given all this money, and with money comes what? I can't understand why this is true, but with money comes women. Ladies, you should do some gut checking about why that's true. Seriously. Okay? But for some reason, with money came the, the women, and with the women came all kinds of distraction, and little by little, even this great supernatural wisdom that Solomon had been given melted away over the years, and he ended his life an adulterer, a man who had abused power. He had lost his faith in God. He died a broken man. He did not live to an old age like God had promised because that long life was conditional. If you will walk with me, I will give you long life. But because he did not walk with God, he died in his mid-60s. He died in his mid-60s, which even by today's standards would not be a long life. I'm telling you right now that God's blessings are conditional and he did not get the full benefit of what God wanted to give him. And it all began just like last week with David and Bathsheba with a small, incrementally bad decision. In Robert Louis Stevenson's novel, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, you know how it goes, he takes a potion so that the respectable Dr. Jekyll can run wild at night as Mr. Hyde and he can do all kinds of evil, vile things and then take an antidote and by morning return to his respectable life. And, and Stevenson wrote that novel to point fun, to expose the hypocrisy of upper-class society who love to have their respectability but in the quiet cover of night did all kinds of unmentionable things. And little by little what happened was, one day, Dr. Jekyll wakes up and finds that he has become Mr. Hyde, but he's never taken the potion. And so in a panic, he starts chugging the antidote and nothing happens. And what we realize is this alter ego that he had been dabbling in, playing around with, had become who he really is. And for all that flirting with the dark side, the darkness had won. And he had changed in his essence, and he had become what he pretended to be. That's where some of you are heading, if you're not careful. You've been playing some games at night, under the cover of privacy and darkness. And God may have given you an amazing gift, but you can squander it if you don't steward it for Him. Be careful what you do with the gifts God gives. But if you will use them well, I promise you this, you and I together, can change the whole world for the glory of God. There's nothing we can't do. It's my prayer as we wrap up here that God will grant that kind of profound, world-changing wisdom to many of us. 
I'm going to invite you to bow with me for a word of prayer. You know, the, our world has nearly six and a half billion people. Each one of us centered, self-seeking, wanting the biggest chunk of the pie for ourselves. Imagine what a difference it would make if God could get a hold of some of us. And instead of dreaming these little dreams about wealth and power and happiness, He would lay in our hearts a greater dream still for doing something that would actually change our world, that would go on living after we've died. History is filled with stories of men and women who had such a dream and God fueled it. He answered their prayers with miracles. And we read those stories and we wonder, when will that happen to us? It can happen to us. Jesus said in John 15, 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, then he makes the same invitation to us. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you if the dreams you have are the dreams God has for your life and for your world, you can ask boldly for the craziest thing. God, give me a hundred thousand young men and women who will want to change the world and I will leave them for your glory. You could ask crazy things and the Lord will answer. But he is bored to tears with the smallness of most of our dreams and most of our prayers. So I want to invite you, pause now, and ask God for a different kind of dream and a different kind of wisdom. Because he makes the same invitation to you today. Ask whatever you wish in his name, and it will be given to you. Let's go to him in a brief moment of prayer, and then we'll sing a final song together. You know, a lot of us in this church, we are in that stage of our lives where some really big decisions have to be made about where our lives will turn. For some of you, the decisions you make in the next few years will pretty much define how your life will finish. Some of you have felt rumblings that God has more for you than what you've been asking for. Have you ever ever wondered why the mega-rich still go to work? still start companies it's because money is not the greatest goal in life it's the the feeling that I've done something that my life has had meaning and that's what God wants to speak to each of us and I just feel burdened that we should just pause a little longer in prayer and ask for that I know you have a job but do you have a life do you have one that matters that is engaged in great and eternal things. I don't want you to get emotional, but just get sober about that and and let that question sink in a little. Let's spend another minute or so just coming before God, praying through that. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.